And them Germans can sure write a hymn, can't they? That is such a moving, a moving hymn. Well, as you know, uh, uh, I have long been a fan of Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know how many times I've read through that book, maybe eight, maybe ten. Uh, and a number of our uh, folks are going through on Thursdays as the summer book this year through Pilgrim's Progress. And one of the things that I love about Pilgrim's Progress, like all great literature, if you think about it, it has to do with a journey. It has to do with leaving home and going on a journey. And metaphorically, of course, is a, it is a description of the Christian life, leaving this world of sin and going towards the celestial city and all of the pitfalls and mistakes and errors and blessings that we see on that particular journey. And just to remind you, that wonderful book uh, starts off with this. As I walk through the wilderness of this world, I came to a certain place where there was a cave. And I lay down in that place to sleep. As I slept, I dreamed a dream. And in this dream, I saw a man clothed in rags, standing in a place with his face turned away from his house. And he had a book in his hand and a heavy burden on his back. And as I looked, I saw him open the book and began to read. And as he read, he wept and trembled, not being able to contain himself. And he cried out with a loud voice, what shall I do? That's the start of this great journey with his back towards his own home, walking through the wilderness of this world. Uh, as we begin our journey through the book of Philippians, there is a theme there that we're going to have throughout all of these sermons. And that theme is, uh, is uh, contained in this banner, the, it's joy for a journey. And the theme verse is Philippians 13. Uh, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind... And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As we begin this particular uh, wonderful letter of the Apostle Paul, we, I want to kind of inform you. This is a little bit longer introduction we normally have. But I want to kind of inform you about why it is that this letter is so important. And why it's been such a blessing to so many Christians for 2,000 years. Indeed, it's probably some of y'all, is some of your favorite one of your favorite books in all of the Bible. But the Philippians is considered the epistle of joy. Some 16 times that word joy or rejoice is mentioned here. Uh, it's, a, it's a triumphant experience that the Apostle Paul describes and indeed even models even in the midst of all of his suffering. Paul now, when he is writing this letter, and this is important to keep in mind because so often we depend on our circumstances to, to affect our mood. We're driven by feelings instead of to the, the, the understanding of the mind of what Scripture teaches us. And we listen to the devil instead of listening to the Lord. Paul has been jailed or in, in custody for four years now. Arrested in Jerusalem, sent to Caesarea, sat there for two years, appealed to Caesar, got taken to Rome via a ship, via a shipwreck. He is now in house arrest, chained to prisoners. His liberty is restricted, uh, and he is not able to do the very thing that God called him to do, gifted him to do in so many ways. And yet, as we will see, he is overwhelmed with joy. And in so many ways, it's such a, a wonderful experience for us. Uh, to give you a little again, a, some of a summary of Acts chapter 16, Paul and Barnabas have returned victoriously from the famous council of Jerusalem. You remember that council was basically that you don't have to become Jewish to become Christian. 
You don't have to do the dietary laws. You don't have to be circumcised and all that, which opened up the door for Gentile conversion. You often see this term, they were a God-fearing Gentile. That means basically they believed in Yahweh, but they were not willing to do all the legalism, all the dietary laws that were taught by the Pharisees and, uh, and uh, the circumcision and all that kind of stuff. And yet they were God-fearers, so they were sort of welcome, but sort of not. Well, basically, the Council of Jerusalem said, based by, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, because he's made all things clean, we no longer have all these dietary restrictions. We no longer have circumcision. We now have baptism. So this really opened up the doors uh, so for, uh, for Gentile missions in so many ways. So they're going around. They're telling everybody about the good news here. Uh, they, the, uh, they had ho- hoped to basically go back through the steps where Paul's first missionary journey to go back. They attempted to go back to Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit told them not to. Then they went and wanted to go north to Bithynia on the Black Sea, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Notice that in Acts 16, the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus are the same thing, which is a view to the Trinity. Then they wanted to go west towards Troas, uh, uh, and they went to the mouth of the Darnell Straits, the gateway to Europe, and then Luke joins them. And at the Darnells, Paul gets this night vision of a man of Macedonia, come and help us, come and help us. We're so often often hesitant to preach the gospel, to share the gospel with others, to evangelize. And what you're doing is saving them. You're giving them words of life. You're helping them get on a journey to the celestial city, to, to heaven, where their sins can be forgiven. It is help that you are doing, even when it's not accepted, even when it's rejected, even perhaps when you were punished for sharing that truth. And that, that Macedonian vision, come over to Macedonia to help us. And note, I love what Paul, it says there. Paul says, it says immediately, Paul went to help them. So he did. He went over there and they go to Philippi. I love what Kent Hughes says about this, uh, this particular instance. This, this may have been the greatest event in European history. And no one realized it. In an instant came one of the great turning points in history as Paul and company made a two-day crossing to Neapolis and walked nine miles along the Ignatian Way to Philippi. Rome did not know it, but the flag of Christianity was unfurled in Europe that day. Paul writes this letter for several reasons. First of all, to thank them for the generous gift. The Philippians had been very uh, gracious towards helping the apostle Paul. Very often when you were in prison, you had to pay your own way and have your own food and that kind of thing. Epaphroditus had come to bring that gift from the uh, Philippians. And he's explaining why he's sending Epaphroditus back to them with this letter. He's informing them of their circumstances while he is in Rome. And he's warned them about the danger of false teachers. It's so interesting. Paul was hounded by false teachers. Wherever there's light, the darkness seeks to extinguish it, does it not? And that happened, of course, it happens, of course, today, too. So it's a lesson for us all. So he is uh, basically, Epaphroditus has brought this letter to him. Paul is probably writing around uh, after A.D. 62. Uh, and this, this particular letter is also dear to us because it's so personal. It's actually considered a fellowship, a friendship letter in the Roman genre. Uh, and it, it, these are some of the statements he makes here about his love, the love of a pastor, the love of the apostle for a church. I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And, whom, uh, he, and he also calls them my brothers whom I love and long, my joy and my crown. So it's a sweet letter. It's a powerful letter. And it's a letter of hope and it's a letter of joy. And now that's exactly what we need, don't we? With all the difficulties, the struggles of life, the disappointment of what's going on in our culture, we need 
a, a lovely, loving message that reminds us of the joy that is our birthright as Christians. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in faith, we turn to you and we pray, God, that you would help us just to understand these truths. Give us at least one powerful, life-changing thought as we look at this passage and begin this wonderful series on this precious, precious letter to the Philippians. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are looking at the first two verses this morning in Philippians, so I would encourage you again to follow along with me in Philippians. We have our our theme verse, but we're looking at the introduction here of Philippians 1, verses 1 through 2. And it reads, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You might find your home group helps insert of assistance to you. We've got four uh, different headings here that we're, as we break apart this, con, uh, this verse. The first three are in verse uh, 1, and then the second is verse 2. But we, first of all, we see slaves in verse 1a, saints in verse 1b, shepherds in 1c, and then a salutation from Paul uh, in verse uh, chapter 2 here. So first of all, we see here the slaves. Said, he starts off by Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Okay, so this is one of those things you need to understand. Paul wrote this letter. I know I mentioned that a bunch of times. We see that obviously in the book of Acts where Paul was the founder of this particular church. But this has never seriously been, of all the books in the Bible, this has never seriously been attacked. It is still attacked. You know, it's interesting, 2,000 years ago, and you might remember this as we went through Corinthians, we went through First, Second Thessalonians. 2,000 years ago, the key thing the devil did was attack the, the, uh, the uh, authority of the Apostle Paul. Nothing's changed. In the 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, that's what people do. They attack, they attack the authority of the Apostle Paul. Think about somebody who went to the University of South Carolina and taking some religion courses there, and it was always going after Paul. Paul really didn't mean that. He didn't really mean this. Well, did Paul really write this and all this kind of stuff? This, this oozes, if I can say that, with the Apostle Paul as you read this. It is, and, and basically, the content of the letter is not such that someone would, would end up trying to forge something like this. It is deeply personal. Uh, so we know that Paul wrote this. It feels Paulish. He's writing, again, under house arrest in Rome. He is literally chained to uh, people in the Praetorian Guard, guardsmen uh, there in his house. He, does, he is allowed to receive company. We know that from the end of, the, of Acts. And then he says also Timothy. Of course, who is Timothy? Ta Timothy is probably Paul's closest companion, his protege. Uh, Timothy was, in a sense, the, the inheritor of Paul's ministry. He was his child in the faith. And later, after this imprisonment, he will end up writing First and Second Timothy. And Second Timothy, during his another Roman imprisonment, that will end up in his death. But Timothy was probably the secretary of this letter. So that's one reason why T Timothy is also giving greetings, even though most of it comes from the first point. First. Now, the big thing, the big point I want to hit in this particular area, this is this idea of slaves. He says they are servants of Christ Jesus. That's the common word doulos, which we think of servants. That's sort of a nice way to clean up that word. But you know what it mostly meant? Slave. Slave. And you think about this. Here's the Apostle Paul with all of his pedigree, with all of his great learning, with all of his amazing experience. I mean, Paul had conversations with Jesus in person, right? The resurrected Jesus. And when he looks at himself and he introduces himself to these precious Philippians who he trusts, he says, I'm just a slave. I am a slave to Christ. 
He doesn't have to convince them of his apostleship. It's not in question here in Philippi here. But he's picking up also, he's teaching them about the Old Testament principle of being a bondservant. You might remember from the law of Moses in Exodus chapter 21, there was a type of slave who who loved being a slave of, to this particular master. And they would volunteer for slavery. You know, in the old dispensation, uh, you would have a year of jubilee where slaves could be freed. Uh, it wasn't like the chattel slavery for life like we had in the American South. You could be freed. You could earn your freedom at some point in time. But these slaves were, were so passionately in love with their masters, and their master was so good to them, they did not want to be freed. They gave up their freedom Exodus chapter 21 tells us about this. If a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awe, and he shall be his slave forever. Right? So this, is, this is an early version of piercing, right? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a mark of, 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 of slavery, in a sense, to the doorway. He's being nailed literally, in a sense, he doesn't stay there, obviously. They pull the all out. But he's being nailed to the household. That's what Paul is saying he is. I am a slave. I have been nailed to the household of God. Now, in... This world, uh, there were a number of slaves. He's probably writing to some slaves, but there were negative connotations. We, could, we, as Southerners, we understand that, right? You know, we all have a certain. If you're a native Southerner, we have a certain level of shame for the slavery that existed a couple of centuries uh, in, in our nation, and uh, so we can get that. But 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 it's distant. It's been it's been centuries since that that ever occurred in the South. But it was a very real possibility here. And in the mindset of the Roman and the Greek world, a slave was nothing but a thinking tool. There was hardly a difference between a hammer and a plow and a particular slave. So that just shows you all the more the humility of the Apostle Paul, that he would actually take that title to himself. Now, he's obviously using it in a figurative manner. He is not indentured. He is not slave. He is a free man. He's even a Roman citizen. But he wants them to understand this principle that he is a slave. Here's the point. You were also slaves. You were also slaves. We're all slaves to something. Oh, but that you would be a slave to a wonderful master, a godly master, a master who loved you so much that he actually died to forgive your sins. 1 Corinthians 7 says, uh, He who was once a freed when called a slave is a slave of Christ. Paul keeps company, of course, with Moses and Joshua, who considered servants slaves of God, and the prophets who were servants of Yahweh. And this is one of the keys. One reason why Paul can be the model of Christian, uh, a rejoicing Christian, even in the midst of difficulties, is because he is a slave. And because of that, he understands that everything that comes from the hand of the master is meant for God's glory and for his good. That as he will tell the Philippians later, it's all turning out for good. Now, none of us, well, I don't know, most of us, I think, have probably not been incarcerated. We've not spent four years of uh, limited freedom in, in the, in the belly of a, of, a, of a prisoner ship and uh, being chained to prison guards or anything like that. But as you read this letter, you think that has not dampened Paul's enthusiasm or his faith. In fact, it's deepened it. His suffering has made him love his master all the more, which is exactly what it's supposed to do for us as well. 
Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. He will either love the one or hate the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Dennis Johnson says this, everyone is someone's slave. The master you serve may be success or money or what money can buy. Your Lord may be affection or romance or reputation or respect. You may be enslaved by other people's opinion, terrified at the prospect of rejection or ridicule, or perhaps you are hunted haunted by the specter of life alone. You ought to have to face the fact that every master other than Jesus will exploit and disappoint you in the end. Paul saw, in a sense, these chains. Every time he moved, he's sitting there reciting this letter to Timothy, and he's probably, maybe he's walking around, and the Roman guard is with him, or he's, he's, he's sitting down or laying down, he's got these chains. Every time he'd hear the clank of those chains, they remind him, I'm a slave of Christ. These chains are symbolic of being a slave of Christ, and he is a good master. The difficulties that we face in our life, they should, they should, instead of us getting upset at God or us wallowing in self-pity or becoming depressed or anxious, they are to remind us that our master in heaven is looking after for us, that we are slaves to Christ. When we, when we try to break off those chains, uh, when we resent those chains, that's when actually life gets difficult. That's when the joy goes away. But accepting that the suffering, even the difficulties of life are meant to bring about joy, that's, that's what it means to be a slave of Christ. And this epistle of joy is written by a man who's incarcerated, and yet he considers himself, he takes on this title of slave. I love what John MacArthur says. You know, John MacArthur, he's kind of the pit bull of a reformed evangelicalism. He just... Uh, we all admire him because he'll say things that, in articulate ways that we wish we would say sometimes. But he says this about this idea of, of joy. Spiritual joy as opposed to circumstantial joy, as opposed to the joy of the world uh, that's out there. Spiritual joy, on the other hand, is not an attitude dependent on chance or circumstances. It is the deep and abiding confidence that regardless of one's circumstances in life, all is well between the believer and the Lord. No matter what difficulty, pain, disappointment, failure, rejection, or other challenge one is facing, genuine joy remains because of that eternal well-being established by God's grace in salvation. Thus, Scripture makes it clear that the fullest, most lasting, and satisfying joy is derived from a true relationship with God. It is not based on circumstances or chance but it is the gracious and permanent possession of every child of God. Dennis Johnson goes on to say, Paul presents himself and Timothy as men who have found freedom in being slaves, captivated by Christ. Then he gives reasons to believe that becoming Christ's slave is the road to lasting joy. So you, you need to own that title, slave of Christ. Slave of Christ. It's very often when you're pushing against that and you're trying to assert your own freedom and not submit to the authority of God that you become miserable. You think in that freedom you're going to have joy. But what you do is you, you trade for a, more, for a cruel master instead of a good one. So our struggle is so often that we think we deserve better than we get, forgetting that what we get, the good and the bad and the ugly, comes from a hand of God who actually loves us. And you know that. If you've lived long enough, you know. You can see the growth that's occurred to you because of difficulties in your life. You can see that. You can feel that. 
You may not be here today if you had not had particular kinds of suffering in your life in the past, and you eventually should be able to settle with that. Christensen Christensen commented, uh, one who is a slave of Christ is truly free from sin. If he is truly a slave of Christ, he is not a slave of any other realm. We, uh, we like to do uh, theological lessons during our services, and we've been going through the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, and this year, and we're hoping, we're planning right now, beginning January, the first Sunday in January in, in 2024, to go through the Heidelberg Catechism. There's 52 Lord's Days in the Heidelberg Catechism, and the, the nice thing, this is the, the Catechism of the German Reformed Churches, the nice thing about this catechism is they're written in the first person. It's about you. Uh, as opposed to this theoretical thing out there, it's about you. The first question, the very first question of that enormous catechism, uh, that, that profound catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong body, soul, and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way as not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life, makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Paul talks about being a slave here. He talks about the gospel. Of course, the, uh, he mentions the gospel uh, more in this letter than any other times. And he just embraces, he holds it dear to these chains as we should as well. Now we see here saints here. So you're a slave, but you're also a saint to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Uh, the, in the Hebrew, it was Kodesh. And uh, uh, saints is, in the Greek is hagios. It's, it's, basically, it means another word for holy. It's anything that's set aside for God's special use. So, for instance, in the, Old, in the Old Testament, the temple was holy. It was set aside for the worship of God. Utensils in the temple were holy. They're set aside. You don't use them for anything else other than for the purposes of worshiping God. Folks, you are set aside as being holy. You know, they would, in, in the old Renaissance paintings, they would, they would reflect that truth with halos around your head. Mary would have a halo and Jesus would have a halo. You probably actually do have a halo. We just can't see it right now. You really are holy. When the angels look at you and you think, well, I'm so flawed, I'm embarrassed for the angels to look at me. When they look, they look at you, they marvel. They marvel. Look at this child of Adam that is now holy. And the angels who were perfect serve you. In a sense, they are your servants because of the special love that God the Father has you, has for you. So we are saints here. Uh, you know, there's this old, and, and, and there's confusion on this, right? This is one of those wonderful, wonderful fixes of the Reformation. We are a Reformed church. It's in the name. Uh, and, and what it means is they went back to scriptures and they got rid of a lot of these medieval changes that occurred uh, that were basically the agency of men. And that was the canonization of particular people. Even today, the church in Rome will say this person, person performed miracles. They did certain things. They are now a saint. But, uh, you, could, you could revere some of these people. We, we talk about heroes of the faith all the time. But to give them a title and take that is, is to take that title away from the rest of you who are true believers. 
All believers are saints. You don't have to have the, the good housekeeping stamp of approval from Rome to be a saint. There's a wonderful story from Harry Ironsides, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Uh, back in the days before people would fly, he was going to California, I think, in a train, and he was in, a, in a, uh, the car with a bunch of nuns. So here's this Presbyterian minister with a bunch of nuns, and they liked him. He was a nice, friendly guy. He was a gentleman and this kind of thing. So they had this nice conversation, and he looks at the nuns. He said, have you ever personally seen a saint? No, we've, we've never seen a saint. And he said, would you like to see a saint? Yes, <laughs> We would like to see a saint. He goes, it's me, St. Harry. And they're like, oh, God. But he took them to Scripture. And he showed all the references to saints for ordinary Christians. An eight-year-old believer in Christ is a saint. I don't know whatever they ever did with it, but it's a great story because we are saints. That's just simply a scriptural truth here. One of the things I love about uh, what Scripture says about holy, the high priest, of course, was set aside for his job as a high priest. And you recall part of his garments. We give a, a detailed description in Exodus and Leviticus about what the garments are to be. He hears a turban, a clean turban is placed upon his head, and there's a golden plate on there. You remember what the golden plate says? Holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. That is how God, the angels, the saints that have gone, and we each other ought to view ourselves with all of our flaws with all of our sins but they are saints in Christ Jesus this is nothing that you've done to earn this is something that comes because of your relationship with Christ Jesus this idea of in the Lord or in him is mentioned 20 times in this brief letter Paul is consumed with this theological truth of of union with Christ. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, God is the protagonist here, right? Even we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul goes on in Galatians 2.20, he says, It's no longer I who live, Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When I performed the, uh, the Barton Wickheiser wedding, you know, at, the, at the pronunciation of their, of their union, the identity of Zoe Wickheiser was completely absorbed into Addison Barton. The Wickheiser became a Barton. And she was absorbed in that. That is a, a flawed, maybe earthly illustration of this, but it's the same thing with you. You are no longer a sinner, but a saint. Your identity is completely absorbed in that of Christ Jesus. So it's no longer you live, but Christ lives in you. And, of course, he writes this to the, to the church of Philippi here. Again, we go back to Acts chapter 16. Philippi had about a population of 10,000. Philippi has an amazing history, which is pretty remarkable because pride is the thing that keeps you from thinking you need a savior. So if there was a city in the Greek world that had, should have had a little bit of pride, it would have been Philippi. It was, um, it was founded by Alexander the Great's daddy, Philip, named it for himself. Uh, it, it, it basically uh, 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 was a strategic location because it, it was the opening of the plain there into Macedon, north of Greece. Uh, there was a rich uh, mineral deposits, including gold in the nearby mountains. But in 42 B.C., uh, a profound event happened there, the Battle of Philippi between the Republican forces of Brutus and Cassius. 
the chief assassins of Julius Caesar, Mark Anthony and Octavian, who later became Augustus, as in Luke chapter uh, one, the, 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 uh, 2, the decree goes out from Augustus, they, they, pursued, um, they pursued Brutus and Cassius, and basically after that battle, the, Republic, the Roman Republic died and the emperor started. Octavian was later declared uh, to be August Reverend, and that's where he got the title Augustus. Later on, after Cassius was defeated, Mark Anthony uh, uh, had a love affair and an alliance with Cleopatra, and uh, their forces were defeated at the naval battle of Actium. But because the victory at Philippi was so important, Caesar Augustus made Philippi a, a Roman city, an official Roman outpost, and he settled it with veterans of the wars there. So Philippi was special in that it was considered just like Rome. They didn't have to pay taxes. They used Latin. They used Roman customs and that kind of thing. So it was like a little outpost of Rome that was supposed to look like Rome. Paul's custom, as you know, going through the book of Acts, was to start off at the synagogue. Whenever he would go to a town, Corinth or Ephesus, whatever it might be, he would start with the synagogue. But Philippi was such, it was so Romanized, there were not enough Jewish men to start a synagogue. So that's why he goes out. He hears about this place of prayer, and he goes out outside the gate there on the Ganges River, and he, and he sees these women praying, and he starts to pray with them, and Lydia gets saved. Lydia gets saved. Now, y'all, here's a, you know how people say something's a chick flick? I don't know if people say that anymore. I, I probably should not have said that. But chick, this is a chick book. The church of Europe that transformed that continent and made it most influential continent on the planet was founded by a female business owner. That's pretty encouraging. That shows you grace too, doesn't it? They might not have accepted her testimony and work of church of law, but God accepts it. And God says, okay, we're going to start this church with a woman. I like what Kent Hughes says. He says, the man of Macedonian vision turned out to be a woman. You know, So, so Lydia's out there praying. She's a God-fearer. She's worshiping Yahweh. Paul comes up evidently and says, excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm Paul. Uh, can I pray with you? And, and I love what Acts says. God opens her heart to believe. And she believed. And the church was planted. Yeah, I want you, you, you need to, you need to kind of go, go back in time in your mind on this. Can you imagine? Here's Paul praying with Lydia in her household, her servants, maybe her children. He's out there praying. This, it's, it's not even really even a river. It's almost more of a big creek. They're out there praying. If, if Caesar had been going by on his chariot and looked down, he would not have thought anything of it. But that little prayer meeting, the salvation of Lydia, started the church of God in Europe. That, besides the death and resurrection and the conversion of the Apostle Paul, was probably the most significant event to happen on planet Earth for the last 2,000 years. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Who would have ever thought that that little prayer meeting would turn into the cathedrals the missional expansion of the world coming from European cities. It's just a remark. And th these are the people that Paul is writing to. And, and, of course, in so doing, he is also writing to us as well. So 
he said, and again, he, 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 they became, this church became Paul's a favorite church. It gave him less hassle and continued to support him all throughout his ministry. And Philippians 4, he starts to close. He says, you Philippians yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. They, they, they kept food on Paul's table some. And as we remember uh, from going through Corinthians, they sacrificed to themselves to be able to, and even impoverishing themselves, to be able to provide for the others. Now we're going to, the last two points are a good bit uh, shorter here. He says here, with the overseers and deacons, he actually specifies now also with the overseers and deacons. Now, theological point here, Acts chapter 20 and Titus, overseers and elders are the same thing. They're just synonyms for one another. Overseers describes what someone does. They're overseeing the flock. Elder describes who they are. They are elder. They are, they are, they are a shelter. And so he, he kind of calls them out in there. Uh, that term is sometimes uh, translated in the old King James bishops, but there's no difference between an overseer and an elder. So as, as, as uh, Calvin says, when they went and formed this council of bishops that were the bosses of all the other pastors, that was a, a human uh, innovation. That is not something that's scriptural. And then he points out the deacons as well. So the deacons tend to have more of a practical service, uh, as, uh, but are also, in a sense, shepherds, are also, since overseers of the church. And we are, too, according to the author of Hebrews, to imitate their faith. So he's pointing them out. Now, why is he pointing out? Probably because one of the issues was a disunity that was occurring somewhat. You know, you see this as Paul addresses individuals that are having a hard time with each other. And he wants to remind the overseers and the deacons that your job is to shepherd this church, including when sheep aren't getting along well with each other. And to kind of help them to show the, the love that they need to have one another. So these officers, again, this, is a, this shows the Presbyterian form of government. You have elders, which is what Presbyterian means, and then you have deacons. Without elders, this church cannot exist. Without deacons, this church will not function. So both of those two, and that's, it's just so much more simple than we want to make it, than we humans want to make it. And then he goes on with a salutation. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this is the same salutation he uses in Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Second Thessalonians. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to expand on this one too much because last Sunday there was a sermon on peace and grace as he's closing Second Thessalonians here. But just to remind you that this idea of grace to you, uh, most uh, Greek letters would have uh, started off with this idea of, of rejoice, charion. But he kind of gives that same, a, a word that sounds like that and brings in this principle of grace. If there was one word that describes Christianity, it's grace. It's grace. That's why Christianity is the answer to so many of these people who are struggling, so many of these people who are following roads of perversity and, and evil, because they will receive grace in, Christ, in Christianity. They will not receive grace by any other name than Jesus Christ. And, of course, if you receive grace, you also now receive peace. This is that Old Testament idea of shalom, peace or wholeness or well-being. Peace with God because our sins are forgiven in Christ and you are adopted into the family of God and you're no longer considered a sinner but a saint. Paul closed Romans in Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We always want to make it something other than it is. If you were to poll people out there uh, and say, 
Who goes to heaven? You know what they would say. Even most people raised in churches would say this. Good people go to heaven. Bad people go to hell. That is completely counter to what the gospel says. That's completely counter to the idea of grace and peace. For a Christian says, I'm a bad person. Only God is good. I will go into heaven because of his merits, not my own. And, of course, this grace and peace is possible because it comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is a, a view to the divinity of Christ, the oneness and the nature of God the Father and the Son. I love the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, the Collect for Peace from the, the 1953 version says this, O God, who art the author of peace and lover of concord, in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom. You see, it's amazing. You really don't have peace until you recognize that you're a slave of Christ. And when you become a slave to Christ, you experience the perfect freedom because of grace and you can experience peace. Y'all who are Christians know that's true. It's just that you don't always experience it, right? Well, my hope is as we go through Ephesians, we're going to experience these things. So these Philippians, whose great privilege was to be Roman citizens under the reign of Caesar... And residents in one of the greatest places of the empire have come to swear allegiance to a new king, King Jesus, to become slaves of Christ and citizens of heaven. Or as Paul reminds them in 3.20 through 21, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables even him to subject all things to himself. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Uh, it's a spoiler alert if you, all of y'all have not read Pilgrim's Progress yet. As he begins this journey, he gets to heaven. I mean, he probably might have guessed that, but he gets to heaven. And I love how that, pat, that particular chapter closes with him coming after the end of his journey. Now, I saw in my dream that Christian and Hopeful went through the gate. And as they entered, they were transfigured and clothed with raiment that shone like gold. They were met by others with harps and crowns who gave them harps with which to praise and crowns a token of the king's honor. And then I heard in my dream all the bells of the city ringing for joy. Then Christian and hopeful were told, enter into the joy of your Lord. That's where the journey ends, folks. But a lot of that is that that's waiting for us in the celestial city, that's waiting for us in heaven, can be ours now if we will follow the path of joy through Philippians. Lord, bless us, we pray. We struggle so with our attitudes. We get so down, discouraged, anxious because we forget these truths, nail these truths to our brains and let them affect our hearts. The world lives by emotion, even to the point where we deny truth because we feel a certain way. Let us be those people who are transformed by the renewing of our mind that we will know what is good and acceptable and perfect. And use Philippians to do that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.